I'm Pastor Scott, lead pastor of the river. We hope that you are blessed by what you hear on, on this podcast. We hope that God's word continues to have power in your life. And we pray that uh, God makes himself known. Thanks for checking us out and uh, enjoy the service. We're reading this morning our next section from the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. Pastor Will spent some time in the beginning part of the chapter last week and apparently did a whole lot of Greek study, probably more than I'm going to do this morning. But uh, I'm encouraged to hear that. I know that, uh, uh, what has it been? Like, uh, I'm going to say 70 years since you were in Greek class, something like that. So uh, good stuff. Glad that he brought that up. And uh, certainly this morning, there's much for us to learn from from this text. It's, again, a challenging text. Uh, I had someone walk into my office this week, and uh, we were talking about just how challenging the book of Romans is, and, and uh, actually it was Pastor Bill, and Pastor Bill said, hey, maybe next time, why don't you do Philemon to start an expository sermon uh, series? So Philemon is about 24 verses long, not chapters. Maybe that's uh, some wisdom that I should have gleaned. But we're here, and God has a message for us this morning. So as we gather around his word from Romans chapter 5. May we be encouraged. Beginning at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, for before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous." The law was added so that the trespass may increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In our home... There is consistently a discussion that goes on about the types of TV shows that we watch. 
Um, Kristen is an HGTV person. Anyone else here an HGTV person? You know what I'm talking about? Home decorating, home design, home construction. I'm, I can handle it, but only for so long, and then it starts to drive me a little bit crazy. But I've watched enough of these shows, these, these home improvement shows or home decorating or renovation shows, and, uh, to learn one thing that's really important. If you are a person, and they have lots of shows like this, who walk into a house that is new to you, so not a new house, but a house that is new to you, and you're going to purchase this house, and you're going to renovate this house, there's one phrase that you certainly never want to hear. Now, you may think in your mind, oh, it's something like, oh, you have bad electrical, or, you know, you've got, you've got issues with plumbing, or you need to repaint and recarpet the whole house. Actually, although those, those are, are certainly can be expensive fixes depending on what's going on, there's one that's even worse. Anybody want to guess what the one thing you do not want to hear if you buy a house that is new to you? You have a problem with your foundation. If you have a problem with your foundation... You're in real trouble because if the foundation is not secure and you see these houses where they'll like take a little marble and stick it on one corner of a bedroom and then because the house is slanted because the foundation is failing in one quarter, you'll see this marble roll completely across the floor because of the slope uh, of the grade of the floor. You have to go back and dig out that portion of the foundation or in some cases, I was watching this one show, this one home rent innovator had to jack up the house, the entire house, four feet in the air in order to be able to get machines underneath to pull everything out and basically, in essence, for the foundation, start again. Because if you don't have the right foundation in your home, you got a problem. The house is going to fall. When we look here at Romans chapter 5, Paul is dealing with some foundational stuff. He's dealing with an understanding of how sin works, and it's foundational to his future arguments, his future uh, points in the text. So when he goes back, and he wants to go back to the beginning, almost like jacking up the house and redoing the foundation of how people understand, he goes back all the way to the beginning. And in this text, we see the appearance of Adam, the first man. Genesis 1, 2, 3, where Adam shows up through the creation story. And then we hear in Genesis 3, the sin story. Paul wants to go back and help the Romans and help us understand how right from the beginning there were problems with the foundation and those problems need to be addressed. And they have been addressed by God and how we are then to understand what God has done in Jesus Christ. Verse 12, he says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Okay, now he's got a little separation point there, but let's deal with that verse first. Paul here is revisiting the curse of Genesis chapter 3. And if you go back and you see at the end of Genesis chapter 3, 
you see that Adam is condemned to return to the earth from which he came. He was made from dust, to dust he shall return. And God, in his desire to not see humanity live forever, even put an angel to guard the tree of life so that death would happen for Adam as a consequence of that sin that Adam and Eve committed together. Because sin entered the world through Adam, there is death, and we are part of Adam's line and continue that heritage of sin. Now, if you look at this, there's a doctrine, if you've been a part of faith in the church and maybe some catechism teaching, that you're going to automatically think of when you hear that, and that's the doctrine of original sin. I want to talk for a moment about original sin and imputed sin. These are two theological ideas that Paul is addressing that are important for us to understand. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the disobedience of Adam and Eve. Before that, there was no disobedience. They had not yet sinned. Sin was not in the world. But because Adam and Eve participated in taking from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, suddenly everything changed. Adam and Eve sinned together, and we can say that God judged that sin, and thus there was a curse. But the challenge that we face is that sin continues to hold power in the world. Yes, one bite of a fruit that God told Adam and Eve not to take continues to have impact because in essence what happened is that from that moment on, humanity in their heart, their heart, So motivations, fundamental, all the stuff that gives us an identity, that is messed up. There's a curse. And that is that we are not capable of being without sin. Our heart is messed up. That's the doctrine of original sin. And that continues through all humanity. Everyone who is born starts from the very moment of conception with a heart that is broken in terms of how it has a capacity to sin. Now, imputed sin is a different thing. Imputed sin is where we, in and of ourselves, in our own action, not the taking of the fruit that Adam and Eve took, but what it is that we do, we have the capacity to sin, and unfortunately, all of us participate in that. We continue to live out that sin. Adam and that heritage gave us a heart that is broken, original sin, but now we continue to live that out in the things that we do, say, think, the activities that we participate in that are sinful. So even though we are worthy of condemnation for the doctrine of original sin, a broken heart, by our very behavior, we are also worthy of God's condemnation. Original sin, broken heart. Imputed sin, messed up actions, messed up life. From the beginning... From Adam, this is the way things were. And it continues in our lives to this day. And God, remember, can't stand sin. So we see all this stuff that is the consequence of that. Death, condemnation, 
punishment that has to be meted out for sin and all the things that are supposed to deal with it in the Old Testament. Sacrifice, offerings, festivals, all the things that God calls the people so that they can be right, but it doesn't work. So then we get this. Verses 13 and 14 say this. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken to account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is the pattern of the one to come. Now, I understand when you're reading this, there's complexity here, there's challenges here. I see that. These are two complex verses that seem like a tangent that Paul is taking. But remember that Paul is writing to Jewish and Gentile Christians. Here's what I mean. Okay? When Paul says something like this, before the law was given, sin was in the world, that's there to address a specific issue within the church. Remember that you have in the Roman church Jews and Gentiles, right? And remember that Jews live under law. They always have. From the giving of the law to Moses at Mount Sinai, they've lived under that law. And there are some, especially those legalistic Jews, who will say the law is paramount for you to live out in order to be right with God. It's that legalism. It's that Jewishness that we talked about before that Paul is arguing is of no value. The law is of value, but saying that that is what makes you right with God is of no value. When Paul says here that sin and death were in the world before the law came, he's addressing those Jews who would be legalistic and say, hey, guess what? You can obey perfectly whatever you want. You can go into Deuteronomy, memorize it, and live it out perfectly. You can do the same with Leviticus. You can get it all right, but the problem is death and sin were in the world before that and in you, even without obedience to the law. This is addressing a specific issue in the Roman church. And Paul, again, wants to make it clear, as he has already several times in the text, that being Jewish and living out the Jewishness of obedience to the law is of no value. Jew, Gentile, there's no advantage either way. Because law, or sin and death were in the world even before the law was given. Then we get 15 through 17. Here we're starting to get into the meat of the hope of the text. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Paul's doing some math here, and this math is pretty important. He's saying, 
One equals one. And if you think of back when you were in grade school, those symbols, right? You got the symbol equal sign equals, and then you've got the two arrows. This is, I guess it would be for you, greater than. If I reverse it, it would be less than. You know those triangles you remember? You know you grooving with me? You remember this stuff that I'm talking about? He's saying in this text that one equals one. And what he's saying is that Jesus and Adam are both one man. There's an equals. But he's saying that what Adam did is horrible in the sense of bringing sin into the world through original sin and imputed sin. However, what Christ has done is doesn't equal that. It doesn't simply counter that. It's greater than that. It's a larger thing. It's more powerful. And part of the reason why we hear this is a reminder that in our humanity, we may think we are capable of so very much, but for us to remember, if God does something in us or in our world, it is always abundantly greater than what it is that we can do in and of ourselves. Adam and Christ, both one man. The consequences of one's sin, Adam's, brought death to all. One sin. But Christ's righteousness covers a multitude of sin, the greater than sign, and thus saves many from death. Again, God's action reigns supreme. Now I'm going to read another verse again, verse 17, and there's a reason for that. It's the key verse of the text. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man? Really quickly in your Bibles, turn over 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning, or just verse 9. It's ahead, maybe about another hundred pages or so in your scriptures. And this verse is key for an understanding of this reigning thing, and we need to think about this reigning thing. In 1 Peter 2, Peter is addressing God's people and telling them who it is that they are and how it is that they live in the world, and he says this, but you are a chosen people. Uh, What's the word? Royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light, his wonderful light. Now we hear this idea of royalty again in 1 Peter 2 when it talks about us being a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And when we go back to Romans chapter 5, we hear that word reign. And we don't see it as something that is describing God reigning. Later on, we're going to get to grace. We'll talk about that in a moment. But here, in verse 17, we hear about us reigning, right? Do we see that? We reign in the world. Now, yes, of course, certainly, it is through Christ, but it is us reigning. And this is why that is key. For us to think about that, let's talk about the British royal family. 
There's, in Britain, there's a royal family of, uh, I don't know, I think the people who are key to the whole thing are um, the, the queen, and then you got Prince Charles, who's her son, and then you got, let me make sure I get this right, William and Kate, who is Charles' oldest son, who now have a child together and are pregnant with their second, and then you got Prince Harry, who's just the party kid and doing whatever it is that he wants to do. Now, it's interesting because if you follow the royal family over the years, has the royal, fa- the royal family has, they have something that they sort of have to do. If you're going to be a queen or a king or a prince or a princess, you are supposed to act a certain way. And we're going to use the word, you're supposed to act royally. And has the royal family always acted royally? All I have to say is Camilla Parker Bowles, right? That's the mistress of Prince Charles, the one with whom he had adultery with while he was still technically with Princess Diana, and Diana herself wasn't always acting so royally, and of course, unfortunately, she ended up dying in that horrible car crash. They're not acting, they haven't acted royally. But what's interesting is what happens when they do act royally. William and Kate. William and Kate are actually doing a pretty good job. Would you agree? They're pulling it together. And what happens when they pull it together is that the respect for the royal family grows. When Prince Charles was doing whatever it was that was going on with Camilla Parker Bowles, the respect for the royal family went down considerably. If you talked about the royal family, you laughed and chortled about it because they were a ridiculous group of people. But when you talk about William and Kate, because they're living royally, you talk about it a little differently. I'll bring that back to who we are as a royal priesthood who are called to reign through Christ in the world that we live. Are we acting royally? Are we acting into that reigning idea? Are we holding the people of God up in how it is that we are living in our reigning? Or are we instead doing a Camilla Parker Bowles and pulling it down. When we hear from this text the idea that we reign, we reign because God has given us power through Christ, through His grace. And you do. You may not believe you do. You may not even feel that you do. You may feel like you are a loser, like you have no capacity, like you have no gifts in the kingdom of God. But this text reminds you, in Christ... You reign. And 1 Peter 2.9 says you are part of a royal priesthood. You are through Christ. Now, without having done anything, are we living into that identity as royalty in the kingdom of God? Verses 18 and 19. Consequently, just as the result of one man's of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. This is more consequence and gifts. 
First of all, we start with the consequence. Through Adam, humanity's interaction with God is one of judgment and rejection. In that heritage of original sin and imputed sin, God, when we stand before him, remember, he can't stand sin, we are condemned. Condemned to that death, the consequence, the curse of Genesis 3. We're stuck in that. But then the gift comes through Christ, that identity, that relationship, how we interact with God through the Holy Spirit. The curtain is torn in two, and God is open to us personally. And he does interact with us in that loving, caring manner, saying, I gift you, I give you purpose. I give you life. I give you abundance for the purpose of flourishing in the world that I've given to you. The consequence, condemnation. The gift, personal loving relationship. Let's get the foundation right. Make sure it's built up in the way that helps us understand who we are in Christ. And here he also uses that word life. And it's again... He used it before in the text. A Greek word is zoe. If you ever hear of a girl named, a kid named Zoe, it's life. That's what their name means. And zoe is not a word that describes simply sentient existence. We're not talking about zoe, life, like a plant. These are fake plants. I don't know if we have any real ones in this room. But this plant, has a, it's, it has life. Or if it were real, it would have life. It would have roots and take nutrients from the water. But in terms of a real, enormously sentient existence, it doesn't have much. Certainly it interacts with its environment. Certainly there's some stuff that's going on here. But it doesn't have that flourishing. It can't pick up and walk and go and sit and party with the other plants. It's not like we close the doors and turn off the lights and they have a little coffee clutch up here. It doesn't happen. That's, that would not be Zoe. This is not Zoe if this were a live plant. Zoe is flourishing, abundance, fullness of life. God has given us a life with gifts and with abilities and with opportunities and with places where he calls us to go into his world and bring his light and his salt and his hope and his grace and his message in Jesus Christ. Now, certainly, if we do that well, it doesn't make us more right with God, but it is part of the purpose why we have received from God, through Christ, Zoe. Go out and live and flourish. Don't be a plant hanging out in a corner that really isn't doing a whole lot except looking good. That's the challenge that many of us face. Unfortunately, we have a lot of cactuses in the church. Plants that sit in the corner and are difficult to approach because they're prickly and they're hard to engage with. And we've even got Venus flytraps in the church because they devour others, consume them. Instead, God calls us to step out of that world and into the world of flourishing and fullness and life. In all its abundance. And verses 20 through 21 close this out. 
Law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And here we get the capstone Paul's putting on everything. On the power of Christ's gift. Because it's not simply a static gift. God didn't just give his grace to us and say, okay, you've got enough, you're saved, you're good. It's a dynamic gift. It continues to be active in the world. Where sin increases, grace increases all the more. God continues to engage with us as his followers in the world that we live in. So as you and I face challenges, as we fail against temptations, as we make the mistakes that move us to sin, as we get caught up in our own selves, our own pride, our own selfishness, no matter what the circumstances, there is always hope. Why? Because grace continues to increase. If you sit here and you think to yourself, I am lost because of all the different things that I have done. Take hope in this text because there is nothing that you and I could ever do, ever, in any circumstances that God's grace can increase to cover it through the blood of Jesus all the more. You and I live in a life that is challenging. There's going to be this and there's going to be this. And sometimes when we're here, we think God's given up on me. He never does. Ever, 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 ever. Grace increases all the more. God, through Christ, redeems us even in the pit of the depths of the hardest moments of life. That's the gift. Adam brought death. Christ brings life to whatever circumstances we know, whatever challenges we face. He gives us a picture of how Zoe moves to its incredible fullness, and that's the eternity that we will experience flourishing in God's presence. I'm going to give you a quick word about what happens after we die. I do not think under any circumstances, that you and I are simply going to walk into whatever the reward looks like, however that is, and I'm certainly telling you right now, I'm not doing an expository series on Revelation anytime soon. (laughs) But I can tell you that we don't walk into those circumstances and simply grab a harp, walk into a nice place that Christ has prepared for us, and call it good with the light of heaven being God showing us what it is that we experience. I think when we get to heaven, we got stuff to do. And not just stuff that is just easy and fun, but stuff that helps us grow. I think the reason eternity is such a cool thing is because forever and ever and ever and ever, you and I get to experience Zoe in all its abundance and as it grows in how we understand God. Can we ever understand in all his fullness who God is, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? The answer is no. Even if we are with him through all eternity, 
Even if we, in his presence, ask him question after question, gain understanding after understanding, we will never fully be able to engage with who all of God is because God is that incredible and amazing. For eternity, we will experience the new joy on life, the zoe of flourishing in his presence as we discover more of just how much he loves us, just how much he cares for us, just how much he He has a plan for his people. I think that plan continues in heaven. Why wouldn't it? I don't want a harp and a cloud and call it good. I want flourish. I want Zoe to continue. And I think it does. Eternal Zoe. Flourishing fullness and abundance. Okay, so what in all this? First of all, sin is real. And its consequences are real in our life. And they're deathly. They're deathly if they are not covered. If they are not redeemed through the gift of Christ. And that should compel us. You know the gift. God be praised. But how do we carry the gift? That's where it goes next. God has given us the gift of Christ so that our allegiance shift shifts from being reigned over by death, you see that in the text, to reigning over the world. There should be, there should be um, another word in there. Reigning over through Christ. Reigning over the world through Christ. God gives us that gift in Christ to reign. And frankly, for us to understand that and live as royalty, if nothing else, if you don't get anything else from today, get that. Go out of here. Be a prince, a princess, a queen, or a king. If you want to be a count, if you want to be a countess, if you want to be a lady or a lord, you pick one, but go live it out. Go and live into that royalty. Go live into reigning, not through your power, not through your ability, not through your capacity, but through who Christ is in you. He's given you this gift to reign, and he continues to equip you through his Holy Spirit to reign. Live into that reigning. That's thanksgiving. That's saying, praise God for the gift of Jesus Christ. I'm going to live it out. And if you don't know this gift... If you don't know this, this life-giving, Zoe-giving gift, then unfortunately, you're in the consequence of death. And if that's the case, I'm up here afterwards. Come, talk to me. Talk to Pastor Will. Talk to one of the elders or the deacons of the church. We want to talk to you about life, the life that we know in Christ. When we do this, we live into that royal identity through the Spirit, and we witness Grace growing in a broken world. We see when we live into reigning. Reigning gives grace. Reigning gives life. Reigning gives hope. Reigning gives love, encouragement, support. All those things that God calls us to. When we live into that royal priesthood identity, we're showing the world who we really, really are. Many of you know, uh, well, you, you know I'm Canadian, right? Canadian. And because I'm Canadian, um, a couple weeks ago was a very challenging event for my country, my home country, 
Um, I, I'm American too, by the way. I have both citizenships, so I like both countries a lot. But this was a big deal in, uh, in Canada several weeks ago. There was a honor guard at the um, War Memorial, which is in downtown Ottawa, Ontario. I've been there many, many times. I used to live actually 45 minutes from Ottawa, so we would go there often. Been to this place many times. It's a powerful, powerful memorial. And there's an honor guard that sits at that memorial, similar to if you've been to Washington, D.C., the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. These folks stand there as a, uh, a ceremonial guard for the memorial. They have guns in their hand, but those guns are not loaded. They are unarmed. They do not have a weapon with them. And unfortunately, uh, a person chose a terrorist or at the very least a very mentally ill um, person with some strong beliefs decided that he was going to commit a heinous act, approached one of the soldiers at the memorial and shot him dead. And then not far away, 400 yards figure, give or take, I'm gonna, it's in Canada, so I'm going to give it to you, 400 meters from the war memorial is Parliament Buildings. And the center building is the main building where you have the House of Parliament and the Senate and the offices for the parties of Canada. And this man got into a car, went across the road, jumped out of the car, and ran into the Parliament Building. He exchanged some gunfire with the guards at the front and proceeded deeper into the building. If you've ever been there, I have many times, was actually there just five or six years ago and was in this spot. You walk straight through the building and you get, eventually, if you keep going straight, to the parliamentary library. He secluded himself in an alcove and there he sat with his rifle at the ready. Now, a word about a sergeant at arms you may not know what a sergeant at arms is, but I've seen the sergeant at arms in Canada many times. I've never seen the person that I'll talk about, but I saw it when I was a kid a lot. It's a very ceremonial sort of thing. He wears tails, an 18th century type costume, high boots with buckles, a three-cornered hat, and he opens Parliament each day by being preceded in with some other folks dressed in the funny costume that he is, carrying a ceremonial mace, or as Stephen Colbert called it, a large baby rattle. And it's this huge, huge uh, sterling silver thing, and he walks into Parliament, and when he sets it down and takes his place, Parliament is in session. And ceremonially, at least to tourists and people like myself, he was simply a person who was supposed to be there quote-unquote, to guard people. But really, I mean, the guy had a big baby rattle, and that was about it. You thought, how is he going to actually be able to pull anything like protection off? On the day in question, when this terrorist went to the alcove where he was sitting right outside the parliamentary library, this was actually less than 10 meters away from the door to Kevin Vickers, the sergeant-at-arms office. When he heard about what had happened at the war memorial, he proceeded to his office, Kevin Vickers, to get his sidearm and came back in to the parliamentary hallway and found out from the people that were also on security there where the terrorist was, got to the other side. There was, in the alcove, a pillar. The terrorist was on one side. Kevin Vickers was on the other. He actually saw the barrel of the rifle poking out. Man's 55 years old. 
he threw himself out into the hallway on the ground, pointing his weapon up and actually shot and killed the terrorist. If you saw what happened the next day when Parliament opened again, Parliament gave him a standing ovation while this 55-year-old, very stoic, very humble man received standing ovation from all the members of Parliament, including, if you saw it, several people wearing turbans because there's another number of Muslims who are members of Parliament. What's striking to me about the story is that I was literally flabbergasted when I'd heard that the terrorist was shot, that it was the sergeant at arms who'd done it. This guy's three-cornered hat, costume, big baby rattle. This guy isn't someone who I think of being able to protect anybody. What we didn't know, what no one knew, is that he's actually a retired police lieutenant, and he is the person who is in charge of all security for the entire Parliament Hill. He trains regularly with security forces and makes sure that they think through what it is that they would do in circumstances exactly like this. Everyone thought that he was a figurehead. But on that day, he lived into who he really is, a sergeant-at-arms. You and I can be figureheads who sit back and let the world go by us and be a cactus or a Venus flytrap in a corner. Or we can live into a royal priesthood identity where through the grace and the presence and the spirit of Jesus Christ within us, we live into reigning in the world that he's given us to live in. We can sit back and be something symbolic. Nice Christians who go to church and are good to other people. Or we can live into reigning in the world, proclaiming the grace of Jesus Christ, ushering in through his presence, his spirit, and his power, the kingdom of God. Seeing lives changed. Seeing the world altered. Seeing challenges addressed. Seeing injustice dealt with, seeing poverty eliminated in people's lives, seeing sick being encouraged and brought hope and life and encouragement, seeing the widowed all of a sudden no longer being lonely and feeling like they have no place, seeing the person who is in prison knowing that they have a family who cares about them and loves them. That's reigning. That's not a figurehead. That's not sitting in the corner. Understand, brothers and sisters, we don't do this. We don't do this of ourselves. We do it because we've been given a gift. The gift of the grace of Jesus Christ. And he is the one who does it through us. He simply calls us to live into that. Live into who he is in us today. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you've called us to reign. You've called us, Lord, to that royal priesthood. You've called us 
to live into this identity that through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit can change the world that we are a part of. Lord, your kingdom grows through us. Your kingdom flourishes through the zoe of life that we experience. May we live that out in the world that we face each and every day, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our schools, wherever it is, Lord, that you call us. May we live that zoe out, reigning, Lord, through your spirit, seeing you grow your kingdom through us. And by doing that, Lord, us giving thanksgiving to you for the great and incredible gift that we have, the grace of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. We hope that you are blessed by what you hear. Maybe you're checking out our website more and seeing things that you uh, are wondering whether or not you might want to participate in them. Feel free, contact us in the office, give us a call, send us an email. Um, We'd love to hear from you, love to answer any questions that you have. Thanks for checking us out.